Good morning, Providence. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And I am very excited to be bringing the conclusion of our series uh, in Ezekiel. And today we get to talk about the best. We have indeed saved the best for last. This series has been called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And uh, I'm going to ask if we can... Never mind, we're good. Uh, it's called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And we actually took it in reverse order. If you've been here for the whole thing, you already know this. But we started out looking at the ugly, the ugly nature of our sin. And then we moved into the bad, the bad news of God's judgment. And we looked at what that meant. Uh, and then Ray spoke a couple of weeks ago on moving into the good. And we're spending three weeks on the good. And so week one was the good news of uh, God's promise that's woven all throughout this book of Ezekiel, uh, that he is not abandoning his people. He is not forsaking his people. He has a plan. He's not out of control. He's not flying off the handle. And in a rage, he's actually preparing and working for the good of his people in the midst of all of this sin and darkness. And then last week, Hunter came and talked about the prince. There's this princely figure that's uh, in the later chapters of the book of Ezekiel, and it's there. He's there to underscore Israel's need for good leadership. And they hadn't experienced truly good, sufficient leadership ever in their history. All of their leaders had been broken. And so there's this picture of what good leadership would look like, and it's there to point us ultimately to the better prince that's coming, actually a king, King Jesus himself, and Hunter laid that out for us last week. So it was good with Ray, it was better with Hunter, and then this week is the best news, the presence of God, and this is the best news in the entire book of Ezekiel. But before we get into the best news, before, in order for us to see it and receive it as the best news, we need to go back for just a few minutes to the beginning of the story. And it's by way of refreshing your memory, we're going to go to chapter 8. And we're just going to spend a little bit of time in chapter 8 and look at how we got to where we are by the time we get to the end of Ezekiel. By the time we get to the end of Ezekiel, God has left Jerusalem. God has left the temple, but he has left Jerusalem. He's left the city. He is gone there's this image that shows up in Ezekiel a couple of different times early in the book of these wheels within wheels. And it's actually this image of the throne of God that is also a chariot. And it's actually on the move. And so it is this grieving image of God leaving his people. The chariot the throne, the presence of God is moving out of the temple and out of the city. And why is this happening? Well, it's happening for a lot of reasons. Primarily the idolatry of God's people. God's people have fallen in love with other lesser false gods and have begun worshiping other gods. And in that process, they have also become completely unjust. There is no justice in the land. Hunter actually talked a little bit about that last week. So the country is bankrupt of true worship and it's bankrupt of justice. But on the outside, it looks pretty good. They've got enough. They have provision. They have money. 
until the judgment of God comes and these surrounding nations start moving in on Israel's territory and actually starting to haul people away. But here, this, this chapter 8 is this core grievance that God has against his people. Chapter 8 is the beginning of one of Ezekiel's visions, and this vision is going to carry him all the way through the end of chapter 11. But in chapter 8, it opens up by saying, In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. And I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. This man is going to come to Ezekiel and say, come with me, follow me. I'm going to show you what Israel has been doing. I'm going to show you what my people, the people of God, have been doing. Verse 5, son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, in the entrance, was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far away from my sanctuary. But you will see still greater abominations. What is happening here? What is an image of jealousy? We don't really know what the specific image was. Most other Bible translations will translate that word idol, an idol spurring God to jealousy, moving God to jealousy. One of the core identities of God is that he's a jealous God. He says that over and over and over again. Don't have any other gods before me because there is one God and I am a jealous God. I am jealous for your hearts. And so here in the temple, this is in the temple. Ezekiel is being led into the temple and right in the temple, there is an idol constructed. And we don't know specifically which false God this represents, but we know enough to know that it moves God to incredible jealousy. And it should be bad enough. Ezekiel is shocked by it. We know this because this messenger says to Ezekiel, but wait, it's going to get worse. Just wait, Ezekiel. I'm going to show you a greater abomination than even this. You think this is bad. It's going to get worse. Which leaves us with the understanding that this is pretty bad, right? So let's keep going. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court. When I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So Ezekiel tunnels underneath the wall inside the temple here. says, go in and see the vile abominations that they're committing. And so he digs. He digs under the wall and he comes into this room. And it says there are 70 elders of Israel. These are the leaders, the princes of Israel gathered in this dark room. In verse, uh, verse 11, before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, the Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, you will see greater abominations." If you go back to verse 10, when he walks into the room, it says, There engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. This is their leaders in the temple, in this hidden room, worshiping these created beings. 
instead of the creator God. This is who Israel is looking to for leadership. So you've got the people of Israel worshiping an idol here in the temple, but then you've got their leaders worshiping idols, imagery within the temple of God. And this messenger says to Ezekiel, but that's, it's, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. I'll show you worse. Then he brought me into the inner court, verse 16. No, actually, I'm going to go to verse 14. I'm sorry. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, have you seen this? Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. What's going on there? The god Tammuz was a very well-known Middle Eastern god worshipped by all of the surrounding nations at this time. And it was often involving, it was also in, uh, involved, the worship of this god involved temple prostitution. This was the god overseeing agriculture. The god of the harvest, Tammuz. And so they would hire actual professional mourners at the end of the harvesting season as Tammuz went off into the sunset and winter approached to mourn the passing of Tammuz. And that's what Israel is doing here. Israel is mourning the passing of Tammuz, their God of provision and harvest. And in the spring, they would gather together and they would celebrate the arrival of Tammuz. And along with all of these, this celebration and this mourning, there was temple prostitution. And this was likely happening in the temple of God. This worship. And this messenger says to Ezekiel, it's, I know, it's bad. This is evil. This is detestable, other translations will say. But I'll show you even more. It's going to get worse. Verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. And he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Have you seen this? Just pause and look. Have you seen it? Have you seen it? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose, therefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. What's happening in this latest group, this space, even though these 25 men are not identified specifically as priests, this space between the porch and the altar is reserved for the priesthood, which should lead us to believe this is the priesthood. These are priests. If anyone in Israel should know better, if the people of God themselves don't know better, if the leaders don't know better, surely the priests know better. Surely the priests of God will be worshiping God and facilitating the pure worship of God, but they're not. They've turned their backs on the sanctuary and they're worshiping the sun. They're worshiping the sun. At the beginning, the Lord tells Ezekiel, they are driving me far from my sanctuary. Verse 6, driving me 
far from my sanctuary. I have no home in the temple of my people. I've been kicked out of my house. God is going to go on throughout the chapters, and we've kind of keyed in on some of the passages, but God is going to compare his people to a lover who has been unfaithful. So seeing this practice, I mean, this is awful. This is, this is on a much, much infinitely lower level, but I think you'll get it. This is Pete Davidson texting Kanye West and saying, I'm in bed with your wife. That's what this is. To the heart of God, this grieves the heart of God, and his heart breaks. So in chapter 10 and chapter 11, Ezekiel gets this heart-rending vision of God slowly in stages moving on his chariot and his throne, moving out of his sanctuary, being pushed out by his people who no longer want him. And he exits in stages. So you get this picture of a father who is continually pausing and looking over his shoulder, hoping to see his wayward son returning. And he's not returning. And he goes and he pauses and he pauses and lingers. And he goes and he pauses and he lingers until the throne rests on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. And that's where it stays. Five times in these chapters, God is going to be titled the God of Israel. And at the end of chapter 11, for the rest of the book of Ezekiel, he stops calling himself that. He's no longer referred to as the God of Israel because Israel has ejected him. Israel has ejected him. And he is outside, outside the city, not even welcome in his own home. And at the very end of this, <clears throat> when the people of God have pushed him out of his own sanctuary, and as they start to realize the implications of this, because they're surrounded by hostile nations, they start to realize the implications are, we are going to be routed these nations are superior to us in military might and in power and in wealth, and they're going to come and they're going to plunder us and drive us from our homes, and we will have no home. Listen to this promise. God cannot leave them without a promise. In chapter 11, verse 16, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come here, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. All of these idols will be cleaned out, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I want you to zero in on I have been a sanctuary to them. It's so ironic that he would say that to his people. His people have essentially said, you're not welcome in your home. You have no home here. And God says, yet I will be a home to you. 
Isn't that astounding? I want us, it's necessary for us to pause here in this vision to be able to see the beauty of the final vision of the book of Ezekiel. Because it's too easy for us to dismiss what happens in chapter 8 as something that those people did back then. That's, that's a trap that we often fall into. C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery. We look back at the people of Israel in chapter 8 and we say, can you imagine drawing pictures of created things and worshiping those things or making a big statue and falling down and worshiping it or worshiping an imagined God of provision and flourishing? Can you, I mean, it's just so foreign. Can you imagine? They're Neanderthals. But this is the story of humanity. This is not something new, and it's not something old. It's just something true of us. This is what humans have done from the beginning, and it is what we will do left to ourselves day in and day out. We will put our hope in lesser things, and we will worship lesser gods. We will do it. A few weeks ago, we had Scott Osborne come out and teach, and he taught on just the story of God, and he brought it all down to what does it mean in the New Testament to work out your salvation as a family of God, as a community in this neighborhood, and it was excellent, and if you haven't listened to it, I would encourage you to go online and listen to it, but this is the story of God. This is a part of the story of God. This is not an anomaly. What's happening in the temple is not an anomaly that just happened back then and has never happened again. We wrestle with this today. The American church, our church, our hearts have this same tendency. And if we will just pause for a moment, I think we can all see it. We'll be able to see it. And then we will really appreciate what's coming at the end. So let's just ask ourselves, and what I mean by that is I'm going to ask you, what are these people who are worshiping all of these things? What are some things that they're actually looking for? Because the interesting thing in this is they actually have good, holy, God-given desires. They're just, they've been disordered. And they're finding their desires fulfilled or trying to find their desires fulfilled in lesser things. But the desires themselves are good. What are the things that these people want? that they're worshiping these gods, the God of, the God of fertility, Tammuz, or Baal, or Moloch, or any of these other gods. What are some things that they're after? The sun. Why would you worship the sun? What's the desire there? I've had a lot of time to think about this, and so I'll put you on the spot, but I'll help too. Security. security. Absolutely security. Where? Where do you see security? Why? But why is it that they need to go after these other gods to get that? Because hasn't God provided for them? Yes, yes. They, want to be in, they feel like they need to be in control of their own provision. Their provision is up to them. And sure, maybe Yahweh will continue to provide, but why not hedge our bets and make sure that he, he said he would provide daily. He'd give us enough food for the day. But this God says he can handle the harvest season that's coming. Let's, let's hedge our bets, right? 
What else? Provision. I agree. What else? What else are they looking for? What's the human heart longing for in these false gods? The magnificence of nature. I'm so glad you said that. Can we call it transcendence? The transcendent. They want a glimpse of something bigger than themselves. Transcendence, yes. What else? Anything else that you see here? You can even go outside chapter 8 and you see throughout Ezekiel, you see common desires. One common thread is love. The human heart desires love, and God tells them this over and over and over again, I created you for love, and I am love, and I have loved you with an everlasting love, and you have sold your love to the lowest bidder. Life. Go ahead. Yes, the physical. Yes. Materialism. Right? Yeah. Yep, I want a God I can see. And that's nothing new, is it? Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, and what are they doing? They're worshiping a golden calf that they can see. Never mind that the mountain is on fire behind him. (laughs) They want a God that they can see. Okay, so that's them. What about us? Can we relate to these desires? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What's the best part of living here for you? Is it, is it really a daily walk with the eternal God? Is that the best part of living in Denver for you? Or might it be proximity to the mountains? Maybe camping, mountain biking, skiing. These are all things I love and I enjoy. Who would ever worship those things? Right? REI? How about transcendence? Does anybody have this desire to be a part of something bigger than themselves? As you look around Denver, do you think that idol exists in Denver? You can be a part of something bigger than yourself? Of course it does. Of course it does. How about the material? We want something. We want to worship something that we can see or control or buy or have. How about permanence? Permanence. Yes, my needs are met today. I'm standing here clothed and fed and caffeinated. But I want my wealth to last. I'm glad that God provided my needs yesterday. But I need my wealth to last. I need something permanent. So there's a God of fertility that can give me that. I'm interested If you can tell me how to make my money last so I don't have to rely on the provision of God, if you can just make my wealth last my whole life, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be okay. Right? Are you tracking? I resonate with all of these desires in chapter 8 and throughout Ezekiel. Don't you? We want all of these things. We were actually hardwired to want these things. We were hardwired to want life and to want love and to want those things to last, permanence, a place, and transcendence. We were hardwired to long after something bigger than ourselves, the transcendent, the eternal. 
And this world is full of opportunities, full of salesmen who offer us those things. And those things will never satisfy. The things that they're selling are no better than drawings on a wall. They're no better, and they're not going to last. They're not real. Throughout other prophets, God will mock these gods and say, you're going to worship idols made out of wood that I created. You're going to cart them around in a wheelbarrow. I'm not a god that you cart around. I carry you. (laughs) But this is our condition, okay? So don't dismiss chapter 8 as something that they did 2,500 years ago because you'll miss it. Instead, just spend some time in your heart knocking on the drywall of your heart, looking for the hollow places where maybe you're putting some hope in things that were never meant to satisfy you. Because it's there, it's there where the mercy of God will meet you, will forgive you. He's just waiting for you. This is why the psalmist says, search my heart, O God, and see if there be any wicked, abominable way in me. Tunnel under the wall of my heart and see if I've got a secret room of images that I'm worshiping. Search me, oh God. I'm not here to leave you despairing. We're actually here to look at the end of the book. So turn with me, and we're going to keep moving. Chapter 40 through the end, through 48, those nine chapters are the final vision for Ezekiel, and it is so confusing as you read through it. But if you'll take a step back and understand the genre of literature that this is, you can understand, you can get the picture of what's happening here. And it is beautiful. And it will make your heart sing if you see it, if you see it for what it is. In chapter 40, God starts sharing this vision of it with Ezekiel of a restored temple. So by this point, the temple has been utterly destroyed. Jerusalem has been laid low. The people have been hauled off. There is no hope in Israel. And the God of Israel is a rumor in their imaginations. They have forgotten him. They sort of remember the days when they worshiped him, but he's gone now and it's done. It's done. But now, now God is coming back. Actually, at the very end of 39, he tips his hat a little bit and he says, I now, in verse 25, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And moving from 40 through 48, we see that happen. Actually, in chapter 43, the presence, that chariot, the presence of God, the throne, comes back into the sanctuary. And in chapter 44, it says the door closed behind it. And God says to Ezekiel, that door has closed and no one will open it. In other words, the presence of God has returned. God, has, God is showing Ezekiel a, a picture of this future. And Bible scholars will talk sometimes about uh, how the nature of prophecies unfolding for the prophets in the Bible were sort of like a range of mountains. If you stood here and you looked that direction, you'd see a big mountain. But if you've been In that big mountain, you know it's actually made up of several mountains, right? You start driving down I-70, and you're like, oh, wait, you're you're coming up on the mountain. Maybe this is the summit, 
and you get there, and it's like, no, this is not the summit. The summit's way up there. And you get there, and that's not the summit, right? And so then when you get back to Denver, you look, and you see it differently now. You see it more clearly, right? You, you understand that? That's how the prophecies work. And so Ezekiel is given this picture. This is a picture of the end of time. This is the summit. And Ezekiel's not told how Israel's going to get there. He has no idea of the way to this summit, but he has shown this mountaintop, and it is stunning in its beauty. And the first most stunning thing about it is the presence of God has returned. He has returned to his people. Why would he return? Why would he return? Because he gave them new hearts. He has restored them. He has removed their idolatry. He has forgiven their sin by this point. It's all done. He has atoned for their sin. In fact, earlier in the book, he says, there's a day coming when I will atone for your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. Here, that has happened. And we're not clear how, but it has happened. Ezekiel is seeing the final fulfillment of God's promise. And in chapter 44, he says, God says, I am here to stay. Chapter 44. And the Lord said, actually, chapter 43, just so you can see it. Verse 1, then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. This is the glory of God that departed. It is now coming back into the city. In chapter 44, verse 2, the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. I am here to stay. I am here to stay. God has never been here to stay at this point. At the beginning of the story, all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve, he gave Adam and Eve a mandate, prepare the earth for my coming. Prepare the kingdom for the king, and I will come. Prepare, prepare, be fruitful, multiply, get things ready, prepare the way of the Lord, and they didn't. They failed. They got sidetracked by what? All of these lesser things. The created order, permanence, transcendence that they thought they could just grasp for themselves by the usurper. And they were deceived. And so they never did it. And God never came and permanently set up residence. In the Old Testament, his glory would show up in the tabernacle and it would hover over the tabernacle, but it was not his residence. In fact, the New Testament tells us the Lord doesn't live in a tabernacle made with human hands. That's not his house. He doesn't have a mailing address, right? But his glory was there. His presence was with his people, but just not in a permanent fashion. Here, it's permanent. The wheels are off the chariot. The throne isn't moving again. He's here to stay. He is taking up permanent residence. Another image that we see in chapter 47, this one is amazing. Um, okay, so he brings him into the temple, and throughout this whole thing, 
Ezekiel is, t- this is, this is what's one of the many things that's kind of confusing about these chapters is Ezekiel's taking a lot of measurements. Why is Ezekiel taking a lot of measurements? He's taking a lot of measurements for the idea of permanence. We don't do surveys a lot in real estate in the city anymore. The title company has at some point done a survey on your property, and a survey is just the actual official measurement of your property boundaries. So this is your house and your yard. This is your property if you own a house here in the Denver metro. But when you go up into the mountains and you were to buy a mountain property, you would need to hire somebody to take a survey. And that's not going around knocking on your neighbor's doors. This is actually measuring your property. They're going out into the woods, looking for the pins on the corners of your property and measuring them to verify that the property you're paying for is the actual property you're getting. And they'll draw a map showing you this, these boundaries are your boundaries, this land is your land. And you'll be given title to that land, and it's yours as long as you choose to keep it. Then when you go to sell it, the next buyer is going to hire somebody to go do that same thing, go through that same process, measure it, make sure that It's right that the records are right, that this is actually your property. That's all that's happening here with all of these measurements. This is uh, apocalyptic literature. That just means this is revelation. This is something where a prophet is given the opportunity to see beyond the immediate physical world and see oftentimes into the future, into the reality of God. And so in a lot of apocalyptic literature, you'll see this in Revelation too, there's a lot of measuring going on. All this is, is giving the people of Israel hope in their permanence, the permanence of God's promise. This promise really is ours. It's been measured. (laughs) It's ours. It belongs to us. We can walk it. We can feel it. It's as close as you can get to being tangible. That's That's why so much care is given to measuring, okay? So, chapter 47, there's a lot of measuring happening. But verse 3, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water. There's this river flowing out of the temple at this point, and it's strange because that's never happened before. But he's leading Ezekiel through the water, and it was ankle deep. Verse 4, again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. And again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Same question that he asked him in chapter eight when he was looking at something awful. Only this time he's looking at something unimaginably beautiful. Because what we're going to see, what you'd see in the next paragraph if we had time to keep reading is this river is flowing out of the temple, down the mountain from Jerusalem, into the Dead Sea, and there's so much life-giving property in this river coming out of God's temple that it brings life to the Dead Sea and turns the Dead Sea the deadest, saltiest body of water. It brings life to the Dead Sea. That's what this river does. The river flows down from the city of God and brings life to the Dead Sea, resurrects the Dead Sea. And all along the banks of this river are trees, it says, trees full of fruit. And on the banks, verse 12, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month. 
because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. What is this? In these chapters, we are seeing everything we ever wanted in the first place. This is everything for us. This is life. This is the river of life that the Bible talks about. This is sustenance. This is provision. We don't need a God of the harvest. We have a God who's giving us everything we could ever want. This is it. All of those desires, all of those desires that we have deep within us that are hardwired into our souls are being met by God himself in these chapters. Everything we could ever want. We have no need of idols. You won't find them in these chapters because our souls are finally satisfied in God himself. And even that, that's not the best news. So before in chapter 8, when the messenger would say to Ezekiel, I'll show you something worse. I'll show you something worse. I'll show you something worse. In these chapters, it's the opposite. I'll show you something better. Hang on, I'll show you something better. Hang on, I'll show you something better. And he saves the best, the absolute best for last. And it's what I had read this morning for the text. Starting in verse 30 of chapter 48, this is the way the book wraps up. This is the best of the best news. He finishes his measurements of the promise of God, the inheritance of Israel, This is a sure and lasting, permanent promise. Your names are inscribed on the gates. That seems strange to us until we remember verses like, he's got his name, he's got my name written on his hands, right? It's the same thing, permanent, permanent. It's yours permanently. And at the end of the permanence, I'll show you something better. The very last verse, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. There has never been a city like that in the history of the world where God himself lives and takes up residence. God has a mailing address now. He lives here with us in this city. That's the mountain peak that Ezekiel is seeing and telling the exiles, take hope, that day is coming. But how do we get there? How in the world do we get there? If we went outside and looked at the mountains and we didn't have modern transportation, we would wonder, how in the world do we get to the top of that? How do we get there? How are we as a family going to get there? In fact, 1 Peter says that the prophets, like Ezekiel, were given visions that were very hard to understand and they didn't fully understand them the visions that they were given. This means, Peter is saying actually, that you and I have an advantage over Ezekiel, which seems shocking to say because we didn't write the Bible. But we have an advantage over Ezekiel, an advantage of perspective. We have seen the partial fulfillment and the aspects of his vision that we haven't seen fulfilled yet. We at least have been shown the way to get there. Because hundreds of years after this, There's going to be another prophet who comes, John the Baptist, and he's going to say, I have been sent to prepare the way of the Lord, which is the mandate that Adam and Eve were given. I'm here to prepare the way of the Lord. The king is coming, and when he comes, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. But he's coming. The one who comes after me, that's him. That's him. And Jesus shows up and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus will take for himself the identity of God himself. 
So it's not just way off in the future where God dwells among us. Jesus himself takes on flesh and becomes God with us, Emmanuel. And he says, I am the way. You want to know how to get there? To the city where God lives with you forever and where all of your wildest desires and deepest desires and longings are met? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one's going to get there unless they come through me. We get to see it. We can see it, and we don't see it with perfect clarity, Paul says. We still see through a a mirror, right, or a glass that's kind of dim. We don't see it perfectly clear, but now we can see the mountain, and we can see the way to get there. And God didn't just say, get there. He said, I'm coming with you. I will come and take up residence in flesh with you. And that's what he did in Jesus. Jesus comes, takes up residence, shows us the face of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And his disciples say, well, how how in the world would we know how to get there? What did Jesus say to that question? Yes, you've seen me. I am the way. I'm the way. I can get you there. We're going to close with Revelation. This is a better perspective on this same vision a better, clearer perspective. Revelation chapter 22. And this is actually, I mean, we could do all of 21 and all of 22, but we just don't have time. Uh, Okay, we'll go to verse 21, chapter 21, but verse 5. Revelation chapter 21, this is the final vision that God gave to John. This is it, and it's very similar to Ezekiel. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Chapter 22. Verse 1, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. And now there's another character, and of the Lamb. It's getting clearer for us. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Does that sound similar? No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. God is there. He's there. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Guys, this is our inheritance. This is it. This is the best news in all of scripture. The good news of the kingdom to come is not that you'll be reunited with relatives who have gone before you, though that's good news. That's not the best news of what's coming for you. The best news of what's coming for you is not that there will be no more sorrow, though that's really good news. That's not the best news. That's good news, but I can show you something better. The good news is God is there. 
It's not all of the things that we get when we walk into eternity, which is unimaginable wealth. But it's not all of those things. The best news of the gospel is that we will be reunited with our Father forever, and we will see him face to face. Yes, <laughs> thank you. That is the best news. There's not an IRA that's better than that. There's not a tent in the mountains that's better than that. There's not a view that's better than that. There's not a house in the Denver metro, as rare as those are right now, that's better than that. There's not, there's not a billion-dollar inheritance coming for you that could be better than that. There is nothing better than the news that you will one day live face-to-face -face in community with the God of the universe, and in him you will find everything your heart has ever wanted. That's the best news. As I close, it would be good for us, because I know this, I'm speaking from experience, it has been good for me ever since reading Ezekiel all the way through, it would be good to spend time this week, week contemplating the corridors of your heart, knocking on the walls and seeing if there's hollow rooms, hidden rooms, where you're settling for lesser things to get those desires that you have satisfied. If you're honest with yourself, and if you dare to do this in community, they might help you. But if you're honest, you can find these things, and God is waiting to reveal them to you so that you can just repent, bring them out into the light, say, I was hoping in this, but I don't hope in this anymore. I want to hope in you. Spend some time this week basking, meditating on, glorying in the best news that the name of the city to come is God is there forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not giving up on us. You had every right to give up on us. We gave you every opportunity. For thousands of years, we've given you every opportunity to walk out. And you never have. You've never given up. You have followed us and pursued us, and you have been a sanctuary to us, even when we kicked you out of yours. Father, I pray that you'd forgive us for all the corners of our hearts where we worship lesser gods. I pray you'd reveal those things to us and give us a spirit of repentance over those things and help us fix our eyes on you and you alone, the source and giver of all good things. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.